0: Welcome to the Jay Martin show and I'm sitting down with Luke Grohman once again, Luke, it's great to see you. And thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me on Jay. It's great to talk to you again. Well, I'm looking forward to this cause I want to go a whole bunch of different directions. Um, one place I wanted to start though, is it seems like media at this point, Luke, mainstream media has reached consensus about what might happen to the European, U- European union this winter, right? And we're looking at these like energy forecasts in Germany predicting like 3000% increase over five years. And, you know, what could be called a market failure in street terms, hyperinflation and the collapse of industry. Um, In your recent letter, you know, you speculated that this is probably going to occur unless something changes and you're not absolutely convinced that nothing will change, right? So first of all, walk me through that thesis a little bit if you can and why what could occur this winter could lead to global rising inflation and secondly why that path might not occur and what could change to prevent it
1: sure so we're watching we've all seen what's happening with energy prices in europe as a result of various sanctions and disruptions of uh, russia invasion of ukraine uh if nothing changes uh, you'll see uh, the the energy price increases have already occurred. You're already seeing it shut down industry downstream. So uh, a, a notable percentage of the aluminum. Uh, smelting industry in Europe is shut down, energy costs are too high. I saw, I think, zinc the other day. Uh, that tight, ty- you know, there've been discussion throughout uh, the last three or four months about the implications for ammonium production, uh, which is of course critical for food production. And so uh, it was, I thought, perhaps most starkly framed by Zoltan Pozar last week when he said $2 trillion in in German value in industry rests on $20 billion worth of of Russian gas. And so as that gets taken away, um, you have this cascading effect. So to me, there's a few possible outcomes and we can talk about how to handicap those. I think where consensus is at this point is that basically uh, this thing crashes into the ground at 400 miles an hour. And um, if that happens, if we get this energy inflation, uh, the disruption to industry, you're gonna renew um, supply chain disruptions around the world. Uh, We're gonna go right back to uh, earlier this year, late last year, where you had these severe supply chain disruptions. That's gonna reintroduce inflation, uh, in my view, uh, at the CPI level around the world. Um, And that then puts more pressure on the Fed, other central bankers to tighten further, the problem, of course, in my view, is that that Western sovereign debt, in particular, uh, I would argue probably China's in this camp as well. Uh, the the debt levels are so high that they can't raise rates much more without bankrupting the sovereign uh, or the the central bank stepping in to print the money uh, yeah. print the difference. So yeah. you're getting to this very you know people say, well, how many more times can they kick the can down the road? You're getting to the point where they can't kick it down the road.' It, we're, we're, it's going to be this moment of either you let inflation go. Uh, you print the money, or uh, you don't raise rates and ad- to address the inflation, or uh, the whole system sort of comes unhinged in a chaotic manner. That's that's not uh, neither one's a good outcome. Uh, and I'd like to think that there are leaders in Europe that are thinking of potential alternatives. Thus far, I've not been impressed that there are. They seem to think, you know uh, going, being cold and, and windmills and solar panels are going to save them. And if that's the case, I would start be, I, if I was in Europe, I'd be trying to get to the United States for the winter. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the thing that I think nobody is, nobody's too strong a term, but I, I think there are other options. Um, and the other option is ultimately pay I either basically change geopolitical alliances, uh, which is to say, Uh, go back to Putin, agree to pay in whatever currency that he's demanding, and sign a long-term LNG deal, gas deal, energy deal, whatever. Uh, Or, and this is a little bit of uh, part and parcel of the same thing, pay in a better currency, right? Offer a sweetener, which is, uh, look, if you offer, you know, a 5 grams of gold valued at $3000 an ounce or valued at market if you want or you can value it above market but the point is is that then you could say you know, the eurozone could you could do two things i mean if i was in their shoes this is what i would do is i'd say okay russia we will pay you whatever 20 euro per barrel for oil uh equivalent for your gas and and for your oil and we will give you whatever five grams of gold or hundred grams of gold at valued at 3,000 uh, practical terms. It's probably, you know, one to five grams of gold, whatever sure. valued at $3,000 per ounce, well above the market. Because now if I'm Europe, I get two things. Number one, I can get my energy bill down and get my industry back on its feet. And number two, I can source all the gold I want at $3,000 an ounce because I can show up in London and New York and buy it for seventeen hundred fifty mm-hmm. an ounce and make money on the spread. So, as a practical matter, of course, you don't need to move it up to three thousand. It can be, you know, when it's at say, you know, put fifty bucks over market. Yeah, whatever, add a little bit of margin onto it. Add yeah. a little bit of margin, whatever the case is. That's a way you could do it. Now, that is fraught with massive geopolitical, currency market, reserve currency system, all kinds of macro issues. It's not that clean. That's a very simplistic view. But my point in raising this is just that at a time when consensus, at least as far as I can tell, is overwhelmingly in favor of the Eurozone's going to break up and people are going to freeze and starve to death this winter in Europe. Um, normally, when consensus is on some catastrophic outcome, right? Usually something else happens, right? Like, I I mean, I remember sitting in, you know, in a client's office in March of 09. And, you know, the world was ending. And this portfolio manager, I'll never forget. said to me goes, look, Luke, here's, here's how it's going to go. This goes on for another two months. I'm not going to have a job. You're not going to have a job. No one's going to have a job. We're all going to have much bigger fish to fry. So Let's start thinking about what could change. And like literally a week later, the Fed came out, printed a trillion dollars, and started buying treasuries, right? And right. away we went. So yeah. that's that's sort of the genesis for my thought process on this is not so much, hey, here's what's going to happen. But if you start thinking about other options other than sort of the world ending, which is usually a pretty good bet, right? The the start thinking about something other than the world ending, then You know let's see let's see what else develops
0: so if i'm understanding you correctly you know uh, idea one is that europe can't prevent their energy crisis can no longer afford to keep their industry running therefore produce the goods that the rest of the world needs that they can't afford to manufacture anything those things don't make it to the global market that inspires higher global inflation everywhere and we go back to these massive supply chain bottlenecks because products aren't making it out right of the european union um, and that seems to be consensus. I agree that you know that's where we're going to end up. But I with you, that more likely what will occur is that citizens will get vocal and say it's freezing and we don't have jobs. Um, you know, what's in it for us to stick with our Western alliance? Why are we still doing this? It's no longer in our best interests. We have oil, gas, and food in Russia. you know let's strike a deal here, right? And so that's when you get sort of a redrawing of the board. Um, and, you know, Germany, I guess that makes sense. There's countries like Norway, I think they import like 99% of their gas from Russia and countries like Italy, like 25%, like they don't have a lot of other options. You have to assume that's where they're going to go as soon as it gets cold. What I want to understand a little bit more, Luke, is why would Russia accept the premium priced gold in exchange for oil when market value of an ounce of gold is what market value of an ounce of gold is?
1: Uh, ultimately, it would be a good deal for Russia because they're sitting on a pile of whatever it is, 2,300 tons of gold or whatever, right? So they will have used their oil and gas to revalue their gold reserves up massively. And um, they could come more than fully replace the FX reserves that were frozen uh, six months ago by the West uh, because they would immediately, if, if the value of gold is, again, I'm using 3,000 just for easy math, it's literally the mark-to-market of their FX reserves is up enormously. Uh, the other thing that would do is uh, three thousand dollars per ounce is a little bit north of where Russia would need to run a complete gold standard, uh, which would basically make the ruble unsinkable at that point. And then they could take, they could lower interest rates, they could open up the capital account, and all of a sudden, um, it's going to be a very strong currency without any capital controls on it, and that. I think is another thing that they might be thinking about possibly Um, certainly in terms of just that, that flexibility. But I I think the short version is, is it would revalue their FX reserves. It would allow them to completely revalue their, replenish their FX reserves um, using their oil and gas. Right.
0: Now, if you were to think through the countries that are, would be most likely to rethink their alliances due to Demand for natural resources, mainly food and energy, the um, argument's quite strong from Russia. Right, we've got cheap food and energy, and what is what does the West have for you? Sanctions, right, that haven't really worked thus far. Um, any other countries, Luke, strike you as likely to flip and and essentially change teams from their Western alliance to some sort of
1: an Eastern or BRICS block? Yeah, I think that I think I. Th- you know, for me, the changing of alliance is really just about, you know, <laughs> I was just having a conversation with someone about this, like, well, Germany's not going to leave NATO. There's no change in, 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 in alliance comings. So, okay. But then in the next sentence, they say buying Russian gas is a threat to national security. They say, and, and I said, well, who's national security? Germany's national security or, or the United States is national security. And, and they don't really answer but my retort then is, is well if it's a threat to national security then how is germany continuing to buy russian gas not a de facto alliance if, you know if 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 russia if if china if, if any of these countries buying russian gas is a threat to to us national security in my view mostly yeah. um then they are an alliance of sorts. It's an economic alliance of sorts. It's why the US doesn't like it. So I don't, th- to, just to be clear, I don't think NATO is going to break up. But I I do think we're going to wake up in six months and NATO, critical parts of NATO, uh, and the, probably the Japanese are going to be buying ger- uh, Russian gas. And they might be buying it, at least some of it, in their own currency, not in dollars uh, out of real politic. And that's where I think, when I say, I think you're going to see some alliances shift. Um, that's, that's what I think now. I think there's two ways of thinking about that setting aside, uh, the nitty gritty of what politician likes this nationality and all that sort of intra-European stuff, which I have no knowledge of view of. I'm just, I would say I'd look at it two ways. um, number 1 i would say as you just did right who's who's importing the most russian gas pre so who's the most short and and that's probably a pretty good list to start from in terms of who will you know be a, a russian gas customer again possibly yeah. in their own currency yeah and then the other one is i think what i would say the two critical nations are the germans and the japanese Because they have had their current account surpluses tipped into deficit by the rising price of energy. And in plain English, that means they are on a short leash to a short path to a financial crisis currency collapse. Mm -hmm. uh, Because they need those surpluses to basically uh, finance fiscal deficits, and they don't have them anymore, right? So Perfect example is Japan. Basically, the second they started running deficits for gas, yen has kept weakening and weakening and weakening because they've got a you know, once Japan runs a twin deficit as opposed to a current account surplus, they've got to find someone to finance that twin deficit before they were financing their fiscal deficits with their trade surplus. Now they're running a trade deficit and a fiscal deficit. They've got to go out to the open market, finance their deficits. ok? They can't afford to finance their twin deficits at the global rate they would have to pay. It would bankrupt the nation by far. They they would implode in quickly. And that was always Kyle Bass's case on the yen, you know, six, 10 years ago. right? So Japan then has two choices. They can start selling down their foreign assets. They own, I don't know, three trillion, give or take, of U.S. dollar denominated assets, including a trillion foreign treasuries. And so it's been interesting to see the yen go as the yen goes down, down, down. Uh, which is up, up, up in the price of the right? You know, one thirty-five, one thirty-eight, one thirty. 130. Ten-year Treasury yield's gone right with it. It's mm-hmm. been right. So that you know, there's there's there is selling of Treasuries. It appears by the Japanese to raise dollars to finance this now twin deficit. The other alternative is they can start buying energy in their own currency. They call up Putin. They say, "Listen, we'll buy it. We'll pay in yen. Yeah, you take yen, and then we will let you buy." high quality Japanese made goods with that yet. It's a great deal for both. It's win-win. Uh, and the odd man out in that system is the dollar system. Now, again, there are macro geopolitical realities, not least of which is the uh, U.S. military presence on the island of Japan um, to that. And so I don't want to oversimplify it. But I think when you look at it two ways, who's you know who's been importing the most Russian gas to start with? That's one list. The other list, I think, are nations, and in particular, Uh, Germany, Japan, um, I would throw India on that list too. And there's obviously already signs that they are buying Russian energy in increasing amounts in their own currency or are readying to, again, out of the real politic of they will have a currency crisis and economic collapse because of what rising energy prices have done uh, to their balance of payments.
0: So what what else does the US, I mean, you mentioned the macro geopolitical realities, right? There's more bullets in the chamber if you're the Fed or the United States, right? And it's not as simple as, oh, we can buy cheaper gas and food over there. Let's go over there, right? Right, right now, maybe the argument looks that simple and unappealing in that, you know, what, what does Russia offer you? What is What can the US offer you right now? Um, one is immediate relief of a crisis and the other is more obscure, right? Sanctions and, and we'll fight inflation by reducing employments and yada, 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 you know? So, so so what are those macro geopolitical realities? Yes, there's a strong military presence in Japan. You know, is that it? Is is the hot war leverage, you know, the real strong um, bullet in the chamber for the United States, Luke? Or what else is, what else is within their quiver?
1: I think there's the real politic of, of longstanding relationships at a personal level. There's longstanding trade relationships. There are uh, protection relationships as it relates to um, uh, China, um, the, the U.S. protecting Japan from China uh, yeah. with a more belligerent China. So it is not, it is not that simple um, to just say, hey, they're going to go there. Uh, with that said, it depends how bad the situation gets. Once your domestic voters start to get cold, hungry, unemployed, every nation on the planet, it's going to be really, really hard to say in Japan, we need to increase unemployment and we need people to be cold because Putin is bad in the Ukraine 6,000 miles from here. And the United States is telling us not to do this. Mm -hmm. And that's, 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 that's not a, you know, so some of it might come down to what 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 is the election cadence in places like uh, Japan and across Europe, which I again, I'm not familiar with It's That's not my that's not my uh, area of expertise, but if there's no elections. Then they probably can they can probably run on, you know, the politicians can probably run on that platform for a bit. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, Boris Johnson's already out of office. So he was out today or last week saying, you know, you need to be cold to support, you know, so we defeat Putin. Well, if he's out of office, he can say that all he wants. Let's see what the incoming prime minister says and how long, you know, it takes for, you know, whatever, the vote of no confidence or whatever. However, you know, again, I don't know all the intricacies of British politics, but my point is, is that people are people. And like, you know, you have little kids, you have a grandma, like you don't want them cold for some ephemeral green slash, you know, global, policy issue 6,000 miles from where you sit. You don't care. Politics are local.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we'll always be in in a democratic country, I suppose. I wonder how much like leaders like Xi Jinping and Putin kind of look at Western governments as just absolutely and necessarily flaky because they're always going to pander to their electorate on like a four-year cycle. Whereas if you have solidified your position as the leader of a country, and I don't support dictatorships, but... They're powerful for some reasons, right? One of which is they don't have insecurities about whether they're gonna be in power next year or the year after that, right? And that gives them a lot of, a lot of power, I suppose. And probably really affects the way they look at Western societies and that, you know, very short-term thinking, right? Our politicians will say what they need to say to keep their job, knowing that their job is up for grabs every two to four years, you know? Um, it's, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, I think you know what you frequently hear that the deal is in China that the Communist Party makes sure the economy grows and works and 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 the people defer on politics. They don't get involved with politics, and that's that's the deal. Um, it's not a deal we understand as Westerners. It's not a deal I understand, but that's that's the deal. And and I think if you strip that down, it's like they just want stuff to work, yeah. right? And so, and, and when you hear the Westerners say, well, if the economy stops growing in Japan or in China, that's gonna create political legitimacy issues for the CCP, for Xi Jinping, et cetera. When you hear that, what you're really hearing is the Chinese people just want stuff to work. And you go to take this West now and go, like, if you don't have heat, if you can't make aluminum because you don't have the affordable electricity because you don't have affordable gas, stuff's not working. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I don't know that the people are all that different, right? It's they, the, 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 the citizens of every country just want stuff to work. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, I mean, I think China has other issues, right? They got property stuff going on. They've got water issues. They've got, you know, other issues. But I think the what's happening with the power situation, with the heat, with the with energy, is is much more pregnant of an issue uh, in the West, and I think it will become a political issue much more quickly.
0: So, running through these scenarios, number one, what is expected to happen occurs: Europe ends up in an energy crisis; they can't afford to ship out any goods, leading to global inflation. Maybe number two, there's a bit of a rejuggling of the geopolitical map to an extent. Like, how do you position your portfolio? Like, what's, what are you, what are you buying? What are you holding, you know, to ensure that you've got enough insurance for whatever scenario unfolds over the next five to 10 years, knowing we don't know, like we can speculate all day long and it's fun, but we don't know what's going to happen. There's too many variables. So, you know, what's your, what's your ballast? Like what's in the portfolio that keeps you sane and helps you sleep at night?
1: Yeah. When you look out over intermediate to longer term time horizon, I think you want to have more than usual cash. I think you want to have, uh, an overweight in energy broadly defined. Uh, so it's probably, uh, oil, gas, uranium, maybe even some coal, um, maybe some, a small amount of alternatives. Um, I think you want to own, uh, some gold. I think you want to own a little bit of Bitcoin. I think you want to maybe have some productive real estate, um, uh, Perhaps farmland, something that's an energy derivative, something like that. Uh, I, you know, niche hmm. real estate properties, right, that have some sort of finite uniqueness to them that aren't going to be rendered uh, or haircut by either really expensive energy or Amazon or work from home. There's a number of different factors that could, sure. you know, take take certain pieces of property and and reduce their value. Uh, non-linearly and so i want to try to look ahead to those situations and avoid right so look you know wealthy people are always going to have some money they're always going to like going on vacation they're always going to like going on vacation in pretty places right so hey you know lakefront property in british columbia yeah i'm sure it's expensive as heck like lakefront property is everywhere in the in in north america right now and i suspect the world however you buy something like that rent it some sort of infer like there's that's a type of, uh, when I say unique real estate that has, yeah. uh, you know, you've got to take a pretty draconian view of the world to think that there's not going to be some interest in someone either renting it or whatever, things like that. So I, I for me, it's this, I go back to, I've, I've said this before in other interviews, a, a Jacob Fugger type uh, portfolio. Jacob Fugger was said to be the richest man in the history of the world in, in terms of uh, That's right. percentage. And, you know, he said, look, 25% cash, 25% gold, 25% real estate, 25% um, uh, stocks, right? So I think, and then rebalance as you need to. So I think it's really about there's so many things happening that have either never happened before or have not happened in a very long time, but have not happened at this scale that I, I think it's very difficult to have high conviction and hey, let's put all our money here or let's get really overweight here. I think you want to be across a number of things, but I I do think if you're going to have a lean, it's a lean in secular inflation. As you look at intermediate to long, you know, five, five to 10 years, um, it, it, it's it's going to have to be secular inflation.
0: You think so? And, and what what kind of, what kind of rates or increase would you expect, Luke? And what kind of time horizon, I guess, is the more important sure.
1: question. Yeah, I, I think we we've seen the local peak in inflation when July or whatever here in the United States whatever hit nine percent or whatever. I think we'll see it tick down. I think we're probably going to get a whoosh down uh, over the next thirty to sixty days in mm-hmm. inflation and in markets because I think the Fed's over tightening as we speak. Yeah. Um. However, I think that is going to turn around, force them to basically reverse course. Pivot with CPI still four five six percent uh, headline, and I think I, I think we see double digit inflation in the United States by this time next year. Uh, probably towards the end of that twelve month period. I don't think we're going to go from four five six to twelve by January. But sure, uh, you know, there's scenarios in which that could happen. I mean, if Europe does go boom and things just sort of supply chains break down, I yeah, I think it's a layup to have double digit inflation in the U.S. six months from now, eight months from now. But uh, I'm assuming just a normal, steady state. Things don't go boom. Uh, just the fiscal situation of the U.S. government as reserve currency issuer, Fed's going to need to basically begin financing U.S. government deficits again due to the slowdown that we're already in, cutting receipts. Um, you, you're going to, I think, see inflation in a 10, 12, 15 percent range in the United States, uh, you know, by this next time this year. And I think and you'll you... run at that point for a while. Okay. Interesting,
0: interesting. And then, you know, not not having a thorough understanding of how the basket of CPI is created, you know, there's there's inflation of discretionary items, like maybe cars, you know, you can buy an expensive car, a cheap car, uh, all sorts of consumer goods. We saw a lot of discretionary goods inflation over the last six months. Those numbers seem to come down, but the necessities, right, that we need in our life, those are still going up or they they've, they've stayed high, right? And so when you forecast, you know, a year down the road, are you, would would you put emphasis on those necessity goods inflate inflation? Like, is that what you think will be
1: hit with the hardest? I do. Cause ultimately yeah. I think, I think the real bottleneck in this whole system at the moment is, is peak cheap energy. It basically, yeah. You know, we've, we, we, we can find and produce more energy, but it takes a steady increase in the price to do so.
0: So I've heard you say in the interview, if you're a billionaire, you go broke one of two ways. The first is war. The second is hyperinflation, right? I, don't think you can call 15% hyperinflation. It's super, super high, Yeah, higher, yeah, higher than I've ever seen, but you know, it's all relative. Um, I've also heard you say there are very few times in history where you want to own gold, but when those times occur, it's about all you want to own. And so, you know, what would have to occur for us to get to a place like that? Can you see any threads that could get amplified and
1: lead us to a situation like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, China and U.S. go to war over Taiwan. Yeah. Global sovereign bond market is going to zero in real terms. Global sovereign. You're going to be talking about 100, 120 trillion in bonds going to zero in real terms. Yes. Um, And you're also going to be in a world where you're going to have widespread shortages. You would get borderline hyperinflation around the world due to the complexity of supply chains and the likelihood that China would either shut us off or we would blow up the factories in China that make this stuff for us. Um, The um yeah and 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 you know you would there would be no settlement of trade uh in ious in that situation it would be payment in mm. gold uh right. and to, to 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 serve that role you would have to you'd have to gold would have to rise by a multiple where it is today i think i think it's instructive you know the last time the world was in a situation or a situation that i think is most similar to the one we're in now is probably pre-World War One, quite frankly, uh, where you had this great power competition between the uh, the UK and Germany, uh, I think very much analogs to today with the US and China. Uh, Post-World War I, uh, six major industrial powers, US, UK, Japan, Germany, um, Russia, uh, and France, uh, they all saw the real value of their sovereign debt fall 75 to 100% against gold in the ensuing 12 years from 1918 to 14 years, I guess, 1918 to 1933, right? When the U S finally devalued against gold massively, Mm -hmm. Uh, they were the last to do it. The the, the Brits did it in 31, Uh, but the Germans, the Russians hyperinflated. I mean, they, their currencies went to zero against gold. Basically Um, there were political issues there that I don't think are, are apples to apples. And that's always important to point out. Uh, But that's the kind of situation where, yeah, uh, in that situation, any anything that would be conflict related, um, those are the types of situations where, yeah, a lot of you you're your' whatever percent you have in gold, you're going to want you you want to you're gonna want to have a pretty good allocation to physical gold. And
0: knowing that many people are watching those scenarios like you are, you know, we're seeing maybe symptoms of an expectation of that and and maybe one would be um you know, a shift from the the paper gold market to the physical gold market, right? And I'm very curious how that could play out, right? I mean, almost everybody I know who buys or trades gold plays in the paper market. You know, I don't, I I like to own physical gold and uh, I don't know why, it just gives me some confidence, right? Um, But I I think I've heard you say as well, over the last eight years, uh, central banks have purchased three times more gold than US dollars. And there's been a big shift in the philosophy of what is you know, sound money or a reserve currency or an insurance policy and all this. And, and w- would you expect that trend from investors away from the paper market, which is to say you kind of own gold, you, you own an option on gold versus actually taking possession. And if that trend were to really accelerate from central banks through to the institutions, through to the private investors like myself, who want possession, could that put, you know, immense pressure on the gold price that we haven't seen in 10, 20
1: years? Yeah, I think the The central banks, I think, are telling you sort of where this is ultimately going, but they are acting in at sort of a glacial pace, right? Uh, they don't they don't need to mark the market and and so I think over the last since twenty fourteen they've bought two hundred sixty two hundred seventy billion in physical gold and they've sold on net. 200 billion in treasuries so there's okay you know there's there's a serious shift going on people say oh well so what? it's only 200 billion and, and they're right now of course central banks have a printing press so they could revalue that gold anytime they want you just add a zero to the end of it and that so what 250 billion is now 2.5 trillion and that's a little less so what right so yeah, yeah. um <laughs> now that's that's one way you could see gold go up i think it would need to be um Again, it would there would have to be some sort of geopolitical catalyst or something. The other way I think to really get the physical market to separate from the paper market would have to probably be again related to uh, the gold market being brought back in as a settlement mechanism for trade, and I think in particular for energy. Uh, and that's where I think partly what Russia has done over the last ten years is so interesting by buying all these gold reserves; they're effectively swapping oil for gold and and the oil market globally at current prices is, is about 15 times the size of the physical gold market. Uh, and so, you know, if there is a more explicit tie of the energy market to the gold market, that's where you would see the paper market, sort of the mythical paper market break separation from, from physical. Um, and that could be, Hey, you know, war more sanctions something where russia just says okay we're done here uh we value gold at you know 200 barrels per ounce uh 200 barrels of oil per ounce of gold and you know that would establish an arbitrage that would break paper markets instantly uh right because then every every paper western paper trader could go ooh 200 barrels an ounce it's only 20 barrels per ounce at on the new and on, on the Nymex Comex, Comex Nymex. Yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go mm. buy an ounce of gold on Comex, and I'm gonna take delivery the physical because Russia says only physical. And then I'm gonna sell it and uh, for twenty barrels of oil, and and immediately the paper market will shut down because you'll clear out all the inventory like that. And that's that's I don't think the gold markets, you know, I think it will trade with real rates in the short term. I think it sort of goes up with inflation and over time, but for sort of this phase shift that i I do think will ultimately happen at some point um, simply because I think gold needs to be brought is being brought back in as a trade settlement mechanism uh, because the using sovereign debt of an insolvent sovereign as the world's primary reserve asset is a suboptimal system for pretty much everybody except the u s government and that includes u s citizens it's suboptimal for u s citizens as well uh, right. I, I think it'll happen someday but you know, if it happened tomorrow, I wouldn't be surprised. If it happened in 10 years, I wouldn't be surprised.
0: Is there anything other than gold, Luke, that could operate as that settlement asset? Anything outside, any any other alternative currency, basket of currencies, commodity-backed,
1: anything like that? The problem with using useful commodities as a settlement asset is that you're going to starve people to death by using it, right? So let's just say instead of You know, we, we need a new settlement asset and instead of gold, instead of, you know, you've got to write it up a bunch, right. To make that settlement asset big enough to be liquid enough to serve in that capacity. So instead of writing gold up to 10,000 an ounce, um, in which case, you know, nothing really happens. Nobody's short, anything, a bunch of Indian housewives are, uh, are, are a lot richer and, and whatever, uh, Let's write up, let's write up corn from six bucks a bushel or seven bucks a bushel, wherever it's trading today. Let's write it up by, it probably Mm -hmm. needs more than 10 X. Let's write it up by 20 X. So now corn is 120 bucks a bushel. Yeah. You're going to have 4 billion people, 10 billion, 4 billion, 6 billion people globally starved to death. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's the issue with using a productive commodity Um, now. So then you say, all right, well, we don't want to use a productive commodity as a settlement asset in this Mm -hmm. sort of Bretton Woods three system as to, to, to borrow the. The Zoltan phrase, and in that case, to me, Bitcoin works. Um, it's the neutral, it, neutral reserve asset. It has an energy tie to it. Uh, it's finite. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's effectively a digital gold in my view. Um, you know, there are some others who would argue maybe uh, other crypto could. I don't know well enough. I, I I feel like I understand the structure of Bitcoin well enough to 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 believe that. Yeah, it could serve in that capacity. Um, beyond that yeah maybe some baskets of currencies but i i think that's the new you know the problem with baskets of currencies uh is that someone has to run the deficits to supply the currencies and none of the other parties want to do that because it's a threat to their national security because you have to hollow out your manufacturing like the u.s has done so now the europeans don't want to do that the japanese don't or can't the british can't uh the chinese don't want to and and can't if they want to keep their capital account open so your options are really limited to a neutral reserve asset. And if you don't want to starve a bunch of people uh, limited to a quote unquote useless. Yeah. Um,
0: That's such a fascinating argument because uh, you know, I, I, I guess you could consider me a gold bug. I don't consider myself a gold bug. Uh, I do own gold, but I also own real estate Bitcoin cash equities. I don't have you call me a, any of those bugs, but it is what it is. But people who don't own gold often their criticism of it, especially uh, like the dogmatic Bitcoin crowd, points to it as, you know, a useless rock, right? There's no utility. And the way you just described it, you're like, yeah, that's the point, right? If there was high utility, it could never be leveraged as a reserve currency because, you know, whether you use corn as an example, but, you know, put in copper, put in oil, like whatever, you know, if you were to revalue that uh, in order to serve that purpose, you would break the world, right? It just wouldn't
1: work. You're you're seeing that real time, right? I mean, we saw it in the 70s. I mean, that's effectively what the U.S. did, right? Oil went up 400% from October 73 to April 74. And we had gas lines and we had the inflation and we had... Oil was just being made big enough to back the dollar, de facto. Um, now, it would need to go up a lot more than 400% to serve that role this time, right? So, and and that ties all of this saying, hey, well, gold's not used for anything. And that's the beauty of it. And that's, it ties back to the point where, you need to own gold like 1% of the time. And when you, when you, when it's that 1%, you want to own a lot of it. It's because gold, what gold does is gold protects you when governments go bankrupt, because when governments go bankrupt, they don't just go, oops, we don't have the money. When governments go bankrupt, their sovereign debt gets printed with, and you know, they print money to keep their sovereign debt nominally solvent. It's just what they do. And this is like, you know, if, To me, it's one of the most fascinating things is, you know, we wrote about this recently. Um, If you go back there, there's uh, a Reinhardt and and Rogoff did some great work on sovereign debt crises going back, I think, 500 years. Uh, The book was called It's Different This Time. The study was just different this time. A gentleman named uh, uh, Brian Hirschman at Hirschman Capital studied the data and goes, okay, if you go back 220 years to 1800, 98% of the countries that got debt, to GDP to 130% uh, defaulted usually via high inflation, right? They print the money to keep themselves nominally solid 98%. In our business, 98% shots don't come around much. Right. And people say, well, what's the one, what's the 2%? percent Well, it's Japan. Okay. People are like, well, we're going to be Japan. But of course, now look at what's happening to Japan today. Right. is, oops that it's it's catching up with them through Mm. the energy lake and so my point here is is that people the amount of hubris implied to say well it's different this time this is gonna be the first time in 220 years that that our government is not going to print the money and cause it come on you know paper gold markets have helped contain the price of gold bitcoin has done what you would expect gold to do without a paper gold market. It's mm. I think why it's quite frankly wise to own both. Um, so we'll see, but yeah, gold, gold does nothing except do well when governments go broke. Yes. I love that on a real basis.
0: Bitcoin has done what gold would have done, you know, if there was no paper market. I mean, that's an interesting idea to think about, right? Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Now, what are your thoughts on some kind of a, a CBDC? So I'd love to talk about this with you and get your thoughts on the, you know, potential of, you know, uh, a CBDC that's rolled out. That's aim is to replace the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. Um, first of all, do you think this is something we could expect to see, Luke,
1: in you know a variety of ways over the next five years? I think it's something we can expect to see. Uh, to me, it's horrifying. Okay. Okay. Uh, As a concept. Um, why uh, it's simply because of the potential for misuse and political control, right? We need to look no further than Trudeau, what Trudeau did with the trucker strike earlier this year. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. They can shut down your bank account. You know, it, it, it just is a very slippery slope. Um, it would leave constitutional protections etc here in the u.s doing an awful lot of heavy lifting to kind of protect um civil rights um so that that's why i mean i think you'll see it i think the central bankers find it attractive uh because of the uh, fineness with which they would be able to administer monetary policy, right? Um, One of their problems is, is, you know, all their tools are pretty blunt right now, right? So right now, every time they loosen, rich people get a lot richer and poor people get poorer on a real basis because inflation goes up. And that's creating a political problem. And so I I can see the attraction of it as a central banker because I could say, all right, well, if with a CBDC, I can... um, you know, I can I can administer more money to everybody who makes less than, you know, below the 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 50 percent, you know, the median household income and they can buy more stuff. And it it equalizes income inequality and it actually spurs economic growth more. And I can more fine tune that. And I get all of that. And I, and I I understand why they'd like that. And I think that makes sense in an academic vacuum. I think once that thing's let out into the real world, it's it's like, oh, my God, horrifying, right? And I, I would encourage any central banker thinking about it to just, you know, th- think about their political enemy having that power and, yeah. and see if they still really wanted that, right? Their, their worst enemy having the ability to manage at that level, do they really still think it's a good idea? Which is something we do very poorly. Right, uh, even as citizens, right? Think
0: about the tools you want to arm our politicians with. And well, what about when the team changes, right? And <laughs> suddenly it's like, well, wait a minute here. Uh,
1: exactly.
0: I'm I'm with you on that. That's the big threat with CBDCs. You know, initially I heard a lot of uh, talk about um the surveillance that could be accomplished and how what a dystopian society this would create. And I, I get it, but I also kind of feel like that ship sailed a decade ago. I mean. If you're carrying a smartphone, keep, it's all there already. I mean, look at the scale of an app like TikTok and you know, if yep. you're using TikTok, TikTok can see every every app, every file within your phone, every keystroke, everything that's said within the proximity of your phone. I mean, it's it's all there already. So it's nothing new. I think surveillance, give it up. We gave that up a long time ago, but the autonomy we have over, over our money today still does exist, I mean, to, to a lesser or more extent. Canadian truckers is a horrifying example of precedent. In my, in my experience, like I, you know, we tend to look at events as like this thing that happened, but more importantly, it's like, what did that open the door to? Right. And to just, you know, confiscate with zero warning, the bank accounts of everybody down to like the 18 year old who donated $20. Like it wasn't like we're attacking political criminals here. It's just like blanket approach. We have the power to do this now. And it's always hardest the first time, right? It's yep. always easier the second, third, fourth time. Yep. And, yep. uh, you know, that's like a micro scale with Canadian citizens. We saw this obviously grand scale with the, you know, US dollar reserves from Russia. And I think that's another interesting thread. But um, uh, my only, I guess, like question about CBDCs would be the competency of the governments to actually execute a plan like this. If you think about like, what's that other technology that was super efficient and built out at massive scale produced by a government? Like, oh, it's never ever happened. For a reason right like like this stuff typically comes from private enterprise
1: private private industry right and you I know i would argue yeah i mean push back a little bit on that at most of the time i agree 100 percent, right but i think there are things that are so expensive and so long that no private industry would withstand it or could afford to right so the eisenhower highway system here in the u.s right that was a brilliant piece of governance um mm. um you know uh, the internet. The internet never would. The internet right. would have died in the crib without DARPA basically supporting yeah. it. The U.S. Defense Department supporting it. So I think there are exceptions to the rule, but I I would say by and large, your point stands. Of hmm. they tend to not be very good allocators of capital for things that have that are very productive, uh, and they get very uh, corrupted by. Um, just the way the system works, right? The, the, right? the corporate lobbying. I mean the corporate lobbyists basically write all the laws now. So it sort of feeds on itself, at least here in the US. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Having said that, I guess hurdle number one would be getting buy-in from the population. And I don't think that will be hard at all. Um, especially if the incentive <laughs> is like, you know, we can we'll put a bit of cash in your bank account tomorrow, right? And we're seeing 15% CPI. It's like, yeah, I'll take that money. So many people would, right? You look at the STIMI checks over over the pandemic. Like if, if, you know, the politicians stand up and say, you know, this is new and people might be telling you it's scary, but here's what actually happens. We put cash in your bank account weekly, right? And yeah, there's some stuff here, but you know, don't worry about that. Tomorrow you get paid, <laughs> right? you'll get buy-in from of the population.
1: It's just going to happen, right? And uh, yeah, the last 20 years have taught me that the public will believe whatever they're told yeah. and it's, it is what it is.
0: It is what it is, especially since there's been, uh, I guess, at this point, you know, a 14-year training program on operating a digital currency, right? Like, people have come, become more and more comfortable with this uh, concept in technology, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one my, point. One of my guests, Lynette Zhang, she speculates that, you know, it's it's been the Fed that's been behind Bitcoin the entire time as a training protocol to warm people up to the idea of a digital currency when, if, and when. They want to roll out their own central bank issued digital currency. I thought it's a fascinating, uh, yeah, it's interesting fascinating speculation. All right, Luke, I want to point people to Forest for the Trees. Um, I'm just gonna say, like, it's it's one of the most valuable pieces of research available. Um, you publish weekly. It's you know 20 pages of awesome insight. You do a great job at distilling pretty, I don't know, complex and technical um, articles into street talk, so folks like me can wrap my mind around these concepts. And it's like cheaper than a bus pass. I mean, the price point's ridiculous. So um, I want to point people to uh, it's FFTT-LLC.com.
1: Yep. Yeah. FFTT-LLC.com. And yeah, you can find out more about our mass market and institutional product offerings there.
0: Yeah. I'm sure you got a lot more and uh, super active on Twitter. you can find Luke there, but um, look, man, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back on. It was great catching up.